1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Back. more of what you want to hear from the week that was. A Mississauga long-term care home operator is facing a second $20 million lawsuit for allegedly failing to protect residents and staff amid COVID-19. Meanwhile, numbers compiled by the Globe and Mail show, three dozen nursing homes in this province have accounted for just over half of the deaths in long-term care. Libby spoke to the lawyer, Gary Will, who will represent the plaintiff in the lawsuit, and Jane Medes, lawyer and institutional advocate at the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly.
2: The allegations uh, against this home uh, are quite similar to the allegations against uh, a lot of other homes uh, in Ontario. And that is primarily they didn't take uh, proper care of their elderly residents. By that, I mean they didn't properly uh, screen and isolate uh, people with COVID and protect their other residents uh, from catching uh, COVID uh, from these infected uh, uh, residents. We've heard of a number of uh, circumstances where uh, four people would be sharing a room, one of them would have COVID, the other three didn't. This home felt that this was the appropriate uh, way to deal with this. Uh, it's it just uh, uh, ridiculous. Uh, anyone with any common sense uh, would say that you have to isolate people with uh, COVID and prevent the spread of this uh, infection. Um, these homes were also uh, lacking in proper PPE uh, equipment um, and their staff uh, were, um, there weren't enough staff to look after the residents. The, the heartbreaking thing that we're learning is that uh, people in these homes during COVID were not receiving uh, proper care and uh, many of them were not being fed or or uh, given water um, or had their, Um, soiled diapers uh, changed uh, in in an appropriate uh, manner. So everyone, even the the people that didn't catch COVID, were suffering at uh, Schlegel villages. And that's why we brought the uh, lawsuit.
3: Jane, I I know you can't comment on the specific lawsuit, but these are all things that uh, we've been hearing throughout, basically. Absolutely. I mean, we know that... The long term
4: care sector has been underfunded for a long time, and that you know, homes regularly understaff even to what their normal staffing rates are. Um, It's been propped up for years by family members, private caregivers that were being paid to go in. And once COVID came, of course, those people disappeared, and so homes. Um, which, you know, are required to be providing this care, weren't able to do that. Um, so that's certainly, you know, with respect to the sort of ongoing care. And I totally agree uh, with respect to sort of the issues going on. The homes didn't have PPE. They weren't giving them out. I don't know the specifics of this home. But certainly in general, we were hearing um, from many places and from residents where they were telling us that, you know, PPE was locked away, their staff was coming in, they weren't wearing the proper um, gowns and and things and and if you talk to hospital folk and you talk to long term care folk, the precautions taken in hospitals are continue to be extremely different than what is going on in long term care today. The so community at large should be up in arms about this. I think that people should be demanding uh, change in the long term care sector. Um, you know, we will see some of it through. Uh, potentially through the commission, although it's a very short time frame. It's not a public inquiry, so it's uh, unclear how much we'll get. Um, but I think that, you know, the ministers do need to be held accountable. Um, you know, this minister hasn't done a lot. And to say that, oh, well, you know, with somebody else, well, what were you doing in the time, you know, uh, since the government came in? I don't think they did much.
3: Gary, will uh, give us a sense of the timelines for, for these lawsuits?
2: Well, these these lawsuits do take uh, way too long. Um, They're usually never as a result of uh, the plaintiff's side because we want to get these matters uh, um, investigated and pushed along. But these cases uh, do take uh, a lot of time. They can go on for years and years. Uh, um, I would like to see uh, the matter... um, pushed on as quickly as possible, and we will be doing that. Uh, but we need cooperation of the defendants, and we need the cooperation of the courts. Uh, and um, that's I'm, I'm foreseeing a, a problem in, in
1: both respects. Lawyer Gary Will, who will represent the plaintiff in the lawsuit, and Jane Medus, lawyer and institutional advocate at the Advocacy Center for the Elderly. This is UMA Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Komsik for Jane Brown. Concerns are mounting over two homeless shelters in the young Eglinton neighborhood where a staffer was recently stabbed by a resident. But the incident, along with other issues such as break-ins and discarded needles outside and near the facility, have upset local residents as well as business owners. Similar issues have called into question the sustainability of a longer-term shelter nearby at the Roehampton Hotel on Mount Pleasant Road, which some critics argue needs to be vastly improved or relocated. Joining Libby, Rachel chernos Lynn, one of the TDSB trustees for Ward Eleven, Don Valley West.
5: We were first told about the shelter after it had opened, um, and we were we were we learned about it from residents because they started emailing about their experiences in the neighborhood with with um, some associated problems from the shelter. So. There's another trustee. The the shelters are just um, on the boundary between the two wards. So, trustee Shelley Laskin and myself got together, looked at the situation, and we wrote a letter to the mayor and the city, uh, expressing our concerns about the location of the shelters. How
3: close? Are, how close are they to schools?
5: Well, there are five um, schools in the area. Four of them are TDSB, but the Roehampton shelter in particular is uh, within about 50 metres of Eglinton Public School and Northern Secondary School. So there are over 2,000 students just uh, within 50 metres um, of that particular shelter. And then the two on Roehampton are one building away from North Toronto Collegiate um, across the street from St. Monica's, which is a Catholic school. And then John Fisher is one block up, which is another TDSB elementary school. So there are five schools right in the vicinity. So lots of students will be going back to school, as you know, on September 8th, and in that, in that area of those shelters. But in particular... The Roehampton one is, is really very, very close and sandwiched in between two schools.
3: And what's your sense of uh, whether authorities, I mean, I saw the, the mayor responded, as usual, he said there has to be a balance or whatever, and there's been some stepped-up security
5: so, it, there have been some measures put in place since the opening of the shelter, and since, um, with with lots of advocacy on the part of um, trustees like myself, but also many many community members who have been advocating, as well as the city councillors. Um, I know, in particular, I have been dealing with my city councillor, Jay Robinson, um, and she is working very hard to try and make sure uh, that that we are that they are the city is responding to to this crisis so um, community safety teams have been instituted and they walk around the area 24 7 and they pick up hazards like needles uh, and they address any inappropriate activity Uh, but they are not police Uh, there is a corporate security mobile patrol they are working on getting more and more cameras up Um, i know there are cameras out that have been put out just outside the roehampton uh, they're putting things like a, an outside space at the Roe Hampton, like some sort of deck, so that the residents in that shelter will have their own outdoor space, uh, on their own premise, which would be helpful. Uh, you know, there are lots of different things that they are trying, um, and, and those help mitigate risk for sure, but it isn't really a, necessarily, um, a perfect situation, I would say. From a safety point of view, this probably is not a good location and we would urge the city to reconsider. But once it is already there, it is harder to do. So I do believe consultation in some form or another as part of a protocol that schools, if it is in a certain radius, need to be consulted. You know, we we cannot put in a shop selling marijuana in this location because it is too close to a school. So as a result, we now have not everybody in the shelter obviously has addiction issues, but there are, there are addiction issues that have arisen from the shelter. We are finding needles at local schools. We are finding needles right in the immediate vicinity of the shelter. Um, so it, it, it is related and I do feel some form of consultation, whether it is a phone call to the Toronto District School Board or an email that says hey you know we we have this location does this meet the parameters is there a distance issue you know or what do you think we could have at least responded
1: Rachel chernos Lynn one of the Toronto District School Board trustees for Ward 11 Don Valley West I'm Bob Comsick and this is Zuma Radio's best to fight back The Conservatives will vote in their new leader at the end of the week. Will it be Peter McKay, and is he the leader they need? Here in Ontario, a sobering update from Finance Minister Rod Phillips. The province is in a recession, and it'll take a long time to recover. Meanwhile, the bloc leader, threatening to trigger an election in the fall, unless Justin Trudeau, Finance Minister Bill Morneau, as well as the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, Katie Telford, resign. Is that a real ultimatum? Or as New Democrat MP Charlie Angus called it, a hissy fit. Libby talked with conservative strategist Jason Leader, NDP strategist Kim Wright, as well as John Delacourt, Liberal strategist.
6: This is a hissy fit. Um, I, I think uh, everybody views this as, uh, as as the kind of rhetoric that may play well to uh, Mr. Blanche's base. But that doesn't really resonate outside of uh, his base. Um, Across the country, I think Canadians look at this and say, that's kind of what my drunk uncle at the dinner table would say. If indeed I could still have dinner with my my drunk uncle. Um, I think we're in a uh, position where I think uh, Canadians uh, have far uh, more measured an approach and far more, um, uh, I, I, I think... They have questions and concerns about the rollout of the stimulus measures, no question. Um, but by the same token, I think they view um, uh, Parliament and uh, the government itself as, as as managing this 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 crisis that we're in uh, ably. Um, at least fifty six percent, of majority of Canadians, right now, are, are are still still have confidence. And I think that the measures uh, that the government is currently taking, including uh, bringing Mark Carney back into the tent, as it were, uh, are, are going to shore up some of that confidence.
3: Jason, uh, the Conservatives will have a leader in place <laughs> by September, but uh, what do you think about the idea of going to the polls, and, and uh, is there any support for that?
7: I think it's unlikely that we're going to go to the polls. I think there's going to be support amongst uh, Conservative partisans. I think our new leader, whoever that is, is probably going to be interested in uh in a quick election, or at least going to be uh, going to be putting forward the position that they're going to be interested in one. It gives a heck of a lot of power to the NDP, by the way. And just so the listeners understand, you basically need all three opposition parties to vote for an election to get rid of the the Liberals and, and force one. So when the Conservatives and the Bloc both say we're going to vote some sort of no confidence in the in the in the government, what that means is the NDP now holds all the cards. So. Uh, you know, I'm interested to see what Kim has to say. Uh, you know, Mr. Uh, Singh has showed himself to be like one of the worst negotiators at the poker table so far, uh, by you know, like letting the government continue all summer without uh, you know, essentially getting anything returned. We'll see if he's a better negotiator this time. But he does hold some cards going forward. So um, I don't. I'm not betting on an election. I think. I think there's not enough in it for the NDP to have an election in the next short while.
3: Kim. Well,
8: I think he's a lot better negotiator. What we've seen for Canadians has been, you know, expansion out of of uh, the benefits programs, ensuring that uh, those with disabilities are, are are properly captured, holding the government to account. And and while I always love hearing conservatives say that you know Parliament doesn't sit this summer, we gave up all these things, and yet yesterday they were all complaining that Justin Trudeau wasn't in the House to be accountable because the House fat. Uh, so all of these things are gamesmanship. I mean, I don't think Canadian Tire has as many games as some of the opposition members want to play on all of this. Uh, but at the end of the day, we are not going to have an election this fall. Uh, it is conversations that make people excited. It certainly sells extra services for, for pollsters and strategists. Uh, but we are not going to the polls this uh, this uh, early this fall. The Conservatives, frankly, uh, will have a lot of fence-mending they need to do uh, before they start uh, creating uh, their vision going forward because there's, frankly, nothing that has come out of the Conservative leadership race that I would call visionary in any way, shape, or form. Uh, so all of these things coming forward, we're going to see the House come back this fall. We're going to see a lot more uh, problems for Canadians, frankly, that need to get sorted out. Uh, whether it's on commercial real estate, whether it's uh, making sure that Canadians are not being evicted from their homes, uh, and certainly how the evolution of the CERB program uh, comes forward. So lots uh, lots on the legislative agenda, and you bet your boots that the New Democrats will be front and center in negotiating what is good for Canadians.
1: Political strategists, Kim Wright for the NDP, Conservative Jason Leder, and Liberal John Delacourt. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown, and this is Zuma Radio's best to fight back. The Russians are claiming victory in the race for the first COVID vaccine, which they're approving without phase three human trials, based on testing with a very small sample. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization recommends avoiding dental visits until more is known about the risks of spreading COVID. Libby drilled down on both, pardon the pun, with epidemiologist Dr. Timothy Sly and infectious diseases expert, Dr. Andrew Morris.
9: We remain really concerned about long-term access for primary eye care services in this province because of the uh, chronic underfunding that optometrists have received over the last 30 years. So uh, now that we've moved into a period of time where uh, things are, are, are safer in our communities, Optometrists are currently redirecting uh, patient-initiated partials to emergency rooms. They are um, the types of appointments that patient caller offices for that could be for an eye infection or burning and stinging or flashes and floaters. They they can be um, things that are emergencies. But um, at this point in time, we're not seeing those partial appointments and those are being redirected to other uh, health care providers. And we're doing this out of desperation and necessity because we need the government to, um, you know, take action and try and find a sustainable funding solution. So we're able to continue delivering high quality eye care um, that the patients of the province deserve.
3: What you've asked your members to redirect, are those uh, partial? So if, say, uh, you suddenly had a floater or um, you thought you might have an eye infection and and you wanted the optometrist to triage it, you would say, now we're not doing that for for 25 bucks or whatever.
9: Uh, Essentially, like, you know, we're trying to be um, thoughtful and responsible. So these patients, uh, there's not a super high volume of, of these patients. So we chose this category because um, it would impact less people. But in lots of cases, you know, if something simple, they can be sent to their their family doctor if they need like a prescription for a stye, let's say. But uh, a lot of the cases that require examination of the inside of the eye, they really need to be seen uh, in an emergency room. And that's because that's where the equipment exists to evaluate them properly. And if it's something really serious like a retinal detachment, uh, emergency room physicians have access to uh, ophthalmologists that are able to to see and manage the patient. So we really are looking at this um, from a a patient-centric approach, and we want to make sure that people are cared for. We're also paying a lot of attention to the patients that we aren't able to to see, you know, we're following up with them to make sure that they did receive care and that uh, their outcomes have been okay. So um, we're really trying to do everything that we can um, with the patient in mind during this period of time.
3: Where are you at in terms of negotiating with the province? And do you get, you know, regular negotiations like doctors do, other professions?
9: We do not. So that's kind of what makes us unique as far as healthcare providers we're providing a substantial public service, but there's no there's no mechanism built in to um require the government to have um formal negotiations with us. And that's how we've ended up in this situation because successive governments have um ignored us and they've failed to uh work in good faith with us. So um we are having some uh reasonable dialogue with government but uh which uh, we appreciate They haven't made any formal commitment to um, begin a negotiation process, and that's really what we need them to do. We want to be here to take care of people and to um, continue to um, provide excellent um, medical eye care to patients in the province. But we really need the government to um, commit to negotiations and work with us to find a sustainable funding solution so we're able to do um, that service. You know, so far we've had 50,000 patient letters sent to government from our website called saveicare.ca, and I would encourage people to go there and make sure that their voice is heard um, because we want the government to, uh, to work with us in order to find a stable funding solution so we can continue to provide these services.
1: Epidemiologist Dr. Timothy Sly and infectious diseases expert Dr. Andrew Morris. I'm Bob Komsic, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby's Nymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Bill from Toronto had this take on the federal conservative leadership.
6: So I'm a voting conservative
9: member of the party. Okay. And I voted for Lewis and I voted for Sloan. To me, uh, Lewis and Sloan are the only real conservative. O'Toole... And, uh, McKay, I couldn't even, I, I wouldn't even put them down for my third choice. It's a long shot. I hope one of these two win. And, uh, if not, the only good thing is we've got here Paulie sitting in the, uh, the weeds waiting to come
1: up and rescue us all. Ron and Guelph sees things differently.
6: As in the fact that
7: Peter McKay was dating Belinda Stronach, I think he would make a much better competitor for, um, Justin Trudeau. Uh, he's got a lot more experience. He only got a couple of very small ghosts in his closet in terms of a helicopter ride to Newfoundland or something. Aaron O'Toole has still got some comments that he made that were considered a little bit too far, far right for a lot of people. So
1: David in Toronto phoned in to talk about homeless shelters in neighborhoods.
6: I just think that they could have possibly implemented better security um, prior to the implementation of the Roehampton Hotel. Even though there is a COVID situation going on, I mean, uh, your your pay security guards at the desk, um, metal detectors, things like that would help to protect both the residents and the neighbourhood.
1: Lucy in Toronto says the provincial finance minister has to go after revealing the deficit is projected to hit $38.5 billion.
8: I think that Rod Phillips, the finance minister for Ontario, should resign. I think he's done a terrible job. The deficit is unbelievably high. Ontario will go bankrupt if it if it has a deficit over twenty billion. I mean, what is he thinking? It, 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 I don't know what they're thinking. Spending all this money, there's a cutoff point for everything with the huge amount of unemployment in the in Ontario. I think it's
0: horrible. And now. Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there are a lot of great calls
1: this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Andrea in Toronto, who weighed in on the situation in long term care homes in the wake of news of another multi million dollar lawsuit against an operator.
5: What makes me madder than anything is why nobody has asked Minister Fullerton to be accountable for this like she still has her job she's still collecting a lovely paycheck i'm sure and she just stands there with the premier which is very nice of him to to back her up but why isn't her neck on the chopping block if she says oh we've been working on it is that good enough as a ontarian that for me is no way good enough i'm a senior i, I told my daughter I will die at home before you put me in a long-term care home.
1: That does it for this week's best to fight back on Zoomer radio. If you'd like to qualify for the fight back knockout call of the week, phone us from noon to one weekdays. or if you have a comment email us at fightback at zoomer.ca follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and have your say anytime on our fight back voicemail at 416-367-9636. I'm Bob Comsig. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back.
0: The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.